Hey, you're listening to The Credit Roll, an original podcast by Jamun. I'm Abhinith, a filmmaker, and like a lot of you tuning in, I'm looking to get better at what I do. In every episode of this show, I'll be speaking with professionals in the Indian film industry, discussing their journey, their process, and all the struggles they faced along the way. Today, we're talking to line producer slash co-producer Paul Ritchie. He's had an incredible career having worked on phenomenal films like Slumdog Millionaire, Bend It Like Beckham, The Descent, Mr. Holmes, Viceroy's House. I mean, the list is long and diverse with one great title after the other. And most recently, he worked on the upcoming The White Tiger adaptation, which was filmed in India. Paul, it's really, really great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And good to have you here. So, I want to start off with the basics. What does a line producer do? Well, I suppose, first of all, we ought to clarify there's a, there are a few categories of producer. Um, I mean, there are many, many uh, things that go in front of that producer title, whether it's executive producer, supervising producer, co-producer, associate producer, line producer, you know, so there are, there are many, many titles. I mean, I, I've started my life off as a effectively a line producer, which is a sort of production manager that is that has grown to more of a level and become a line producer where you are more in control of pretty much the entire front to end process, whether it be, you know, post-production at the end or whether it be budgeting and trying to make a script into a viable financeable number. So that's a sort of the line producer element, which is predominantly what I do. And then as I went through my career, we became sort of what's called a co-producer, which was a sort of slightly more a partner to the producer. For example, on, on Slumdog with Christian Coulson, we worked very closely. He was the producer and I was the co-producer. So we worked pretty closely. So that's the producer bit that I do. And then obviously you have, for example, on Slumdog, Christian Coulson, who's the producer who, you know, he took the, the script through financing and the deals, the sales and Pathé and Warner Brothers and eventually Fox, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to all the logistical and financial work, is there a creative angle to the job as well? I mean, I would hope so. I mean, I, I, I suppose it's it's predominantly logistics and it's inevitably money, but there comes a point where we have to help the director creatively, can we afford where is it absolutely vital and pivotal that we put the resources and everywhere else we try and cut our corners and cut our cloth accordingly. So I would hope that there's an element of creative in it, but ostensibly, I, you know, that's not the main drive of the of the task. But yes, we take a script from a producer inevitably, and we are there to help the producer and the director, if they're on board by then, to say, look, I think you, we could shoot this in India or in Italy or in Rome or France or wherever. So there sort of is a bit of creativity, but it's slightly deeper than perhaps normal. And at what stage of production are you brought on to a film? Now, with independent film, you have a, a it starts with the genesis of a script or a book or an idea. It's written, it's given to a producer. They end up with what they feel is a fantastic product. That is the script. And at that point, the producer will then call around and see who's available and eventually, I guess, end up at either my door or whoever's door. And they will call me and say, look, I've got a script. Uh, I've given it to a couple of independent sales companies or it's coming out of Film 4 or BBC Films. And I think we can raise X amount of money. And it's then my job to take that script and 
take that number and see if there's a way of getting the two to converge, come together, and then off we go. Once we have that number, we're able to demonstrate to the financiers and to the bond companies and to whoever that we can make that film for that price. And then then once everybody's agreed, it's our job to physically prove that we can do it. And that's what we go and do. We try and make that film for that price. Okay. And what about your relationship with the director of the film? What is that like as a line producer? Well, it, it's inevitably, it's one of the trickiest relationships. It, it involves a huge amount of trust to begin with, because, you know, inevitably a director wants the world. Uh, he or she wants, you know, everything, thousands of extras, huge effects, great cast, millions and millions of dollars of art department and what have you. And inevitably, we turn up often and it's uh, at this price, we haven't got this, we've got that. We can't do that, we can do this. And it, it can be a complicated and difficult relationship quite often. Um, where it works really well and where there's trust, it's amazing. It's a hugely rewarding and brilliant and fulfilling role. But it can, it can of course, be tricky, no, no question. I see. And is there an example of a decision you've made that had a major impact on a film that you could tell us about? Something that could get people acquainted with the kind of influence a line producer has? Um, I, I mean, it, it's predominantly, it's about, you know, for example, on The Descent, you, we had to look at that script, which was, you know, a horror movie, uh, six girls going caving um, into this abyss and then are attacked by these strange you know, creatures of the underworld. And um, it sort of became very apparent to us that the key to success for that was, look, the creatures had to be absolutely phenomenal and the set had to be extraordinary. And luckily for us, the director, Neil Marshall, came with an amazing production designer called Simon Bowles. And Simon put us in touch with this incredible uh, effects, makeup effects designer called Paul Hyatt, who created these creatures and that was where we put the resource i think you know everyone would agree that that was an, an amazing result in terms of what we achieved for a very small amount of money in in today's in today's world so i think it's things like that you know or it's let's go shoot this in india or let's shoot this in in croatia instead of italy because you know it actually looks more like italy than than italy does now um so it, it, it's stuff like that that we we can help try and elevate, and I think that's a key for us. For me, is is the coming back to the creative bit. All we're trying to do is elevate what a difficult task we have with a budget that we have, and make it as as good as we can, and help the director as best we can with the resources we have. Inevitably, right. So ultimately, the goal is to facilitate the director's vision for the film, just within the means of the production. Yeah, correct. Okay. And before we dig any deeper, I want to ask you, what got you interested in line producing and how did you break into the industry? Well, I, I, I left school when I was 17 and I had a Saturday job working in a, in a shirt shop in a famous street in London called German Street. There was a lady called Kathy Lord who, whose partner was a composer. And so she used to get his shirts, wing collars for his um, composing. And she said to me one day, you know, look, I've got, I work in this commercials company and we need someone just to come in for a couple of weeks and cover the reception. And I said, 
Great. That sounds great. I'm sort of just knocking around. I've taken a full-time job here, but I can take two weeks holiday. And I went and worked for this company called Park Village, who were a a very well-respected, well-known commercials company making sort of Carlsberg and all that sort of stuff, commercials. And my first day was operating a camera with commercials castings. And it was amazing. I stayed there for six months and then I, I left my shirt job, obviously, and, and I then went freelance. And then I got a job at the producers. And they had amazing directors, Mike Radford, Mike Newell, John Emil, Bob Beerman. They had some great directors. So I, I learned a lot at the producers. And then after that, I went to completely freelance. Would you say that most of what you've learned about line producing has come from being on set? Or was there something else to it? No, for, for me, it was a 100% permanent constant onset in production pre-production shoot post wrap etc etc yeah it was it was always on the ground okay i see and getting more specific now can you break down the work process and responsibilities of a line producer in stages going from pre-production to production to post-production so starting with pre-production what's that process like well there's there's a sort of pre-pre-production period which is the period when we've got the script, we've put together a budget, we've got a certain amount of money, or we hope we have a certain amount of money, and we are beginning to try and figure out how real that number is and where we're going to shoot and how we're going to shoot it, et cetera, et cetera, while the producer and the and the financiers are trying to put together the final number so that we know we can go ahead and start actual pre-production so that pre pre pre-production phase is a sort of fairly critical one where we're often asked to just do some location scouting get a design with the director go look at some potential areas talk through before we start this pre-production period mr director or mrs director can you and the designer work with what we have can we do this for you can we make it work and then hopefully once that pre-prep period is is over and we're up and running in pre-production, which is not as easy as it sounds because there's so many factors before you actually start the pre-production for money and everything. Then we get into pre-production and pre-production is, is very much we putting together the team, the crew, the locations, the art department, the locations, the casting, you know, all of the elements that go towards filmmaking. That is the moment when we assemble our team, effectively, uh, mostly HODs, like the production designers usually first, and they bring their uh, crew on board. And then we start bringing in, you know, first ADs, and then it's, you know, costume, and then we bring in DOP, and then we bring in, you know, makeup. And as we get closer and closer to the final, you know, principal photography, then, you know, we're carrying the best part of who knows, it can be anything from 60 to 200 crew, depending on the size of, of picture, of course. So that's pre-production is really the nitty gritty of us all assembling. And of course, all of the decisions and the, and the ideas that we've had in, in pre-production um, are very much the, the tricky part of that process, because, you know, all of those decisions about can we do this all come to light with the designer and everybody saying, you know, look, uh, this is crazy. You people that should be you know, locked away because there's nowhere near enough money or et cetera. And then it's just a constant management issue of trying to, you know, resize the budget, move money from here to there and constantly shift, trying to figure it out. 
Okay. And you mentioned assembling the team and heads of departments. When you're doing that, when you're essentially casting the crew, what kinds of things are you considering beyond, say, budget and IMDb credits? I mean, mostly for us, in the certainly in the independent world, it, it's it's often people that we've had a relationship with before that we trust and that we know can deliver and can deliver amazingly. And also, again, it comes back to that trust issue of us calling a production designer saying, look, we've only got X amount of money. I'm really sorry. And them going, well, look, I, I think we can do it, but we'll have to do it this way. And us all going, great, well, let's try doing it. that. And you know, if we're in trouble, we'll help. And that makes a, a huge difference. Um, so that's the that's the first question mark. The second question for us in terms of crew is it's just, as always, it's about us assembling that team. Right. And you know, you also mentioned budgeting. For someone who doesn't know much about the process, budgeting can be a sort of intimidating and vague term. So what does it really look like? Are you working with a particular software? How much guesswork is involved? In other words, what does it mean to budget a film? Well, I mean, I, I can't deny there's a little bit of alchemy and a hell of a lot of guesswork involved. Okay. We right. use this uh, program called Movie Magic Budgeting and Movie Magic Scheduling. So the first task for us is to take the script, break it down into its sort of component parts, such as cast for one, locations for two, uh, places that we would think maybe set builds, places we think there are lots of action vehicles, maybe it's a period and so costume, then there's you know all the other bits and pieces that go with it. Once we have the schedule and we have a, a sort of sense of number of extras, number of vehicles, number of special effects, number of builds, from that point, then we can fairly accurately start to build the overall number within the movie magic from the schedule. So we know the time is always the big question. How long can we shoot this in? Or how quickly can we shoot it rather? So, you know, that's the first and foremost. That's the the first question is, you know, look, how long do we need? What do we need? And then it's it's about breaking it down into the, you know, the beauty of movie magic is it has a thousand little bits and pieces for story and script and cast and director and, you know, art department, camera, lighting and all the other bits and pieces, post-production, same Okay, and getting a bit more specific now, the terms above the line and below the line, which from my understanding essentially separate the entire workforce behind a film into two categories, play an important role in budgeting as well. Could you talk about these two terms and how they fit into budget allocation? Sure. Well, I mean, inevitably, above the line is just is just purely a separation so that we can see the often historical costs of the writing, the book options, the uh, producer fees, the director fees. Um, we can also see the cast allowances. We get the cast travel and living up there. So we can quickly see, and also for all the financiers and studios, et cetera, they can see you know how much the, the director's account is above the line is, oh, it's looking a bit heavy or you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they can see a director's fee fairly quickly. The below the line is often more the, the domain of us as in line producers and sort of physical production. So that's why you sort of have the differentiation between the two, because the, the bigger ticket items are often, you know, the script, the writer, the producer, director and, and cast. Those are the, the key areas that people want to just see fairly quickly as to, OK, what does this mean? Who have we, how, how much can we afford, you know, Renny Zellweger or, you know, whoever, Jude Law, whatever it is. Uh, so that's the above the line. And then below the line is really genuinely the kind of the nitty gritty, the crew, the HODs 
all the paraphernalia and the costs associated with that. I see. And moving now into production, what's an average day like during production for a line producer? What kinds of decisions are you making? What kind of work are you doing? I mean, once we've got through pre-production, once we start filming, um, the day-to-day work is really just effectively crisis management, really and truthfully, because you know the, the, the shooting day itself is what everything hinges on, whether the director can complete the day, and if the director doesn't complete the day, it creates all sorts of ripple effect issues in terms of us having to plan, well, that act is not available because they're on another job. And so we have to move something from tomorrow into next week and then next week. It's a sort of domino effect. So we're sort of kind of always there waiting to sort of deal with uh, the crisis of it all. And plus, there's always inevitably planning for the future parts of the of the shoot, which maybe we haven't got to in, in the pre-production period because either the sets weren't ready or we hadn't planned those things because we hadn't got you know the finalized versions of the scripts etc so there's always planning to do hey how are we going to lock off that road or there are issues that come up you know london's refused our permissions to to blow up westminster bridge so now we've got to find another bridge to, to blow up and and we end up having endless sort of meetings either at lunchtime or at the end of the day trying to you know work with the teams that we have to say well how do we get around this what do we what do we do was that bridge story an actual thing? No, not 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 entirely. Although I, I do know Westminster Bridge, they, there was a bus explosion on Westminster Bridge that was a little bit bigger and I think a little bit louder than perhaps uh, Westminster Council un- understood it to be, and a, a few knuckles were wrapped. I think. Okay. And you know, I was reading that a big part of the job during production is to manage egos and expectations on set. Could you talk a bit about that? Well, I mean, inevitably, you know, you, you you often are putting the best part of maybe on an independent film, small-ish film, 50, 60 people together. Potentially, I don't know, 50, 60, 70% of them have never set eyes on each other, never worked with each other. And inevitably, we are in a creative world and we are under quite a lot of fiscal and time responsibility. You know, we it, it's fast and it's quick and there's pressure. And that can always lead to, you know, disagreements or, you know, stuff not ready and people blaming each other. And well, why is it not ready? Well, he said, she said, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a, there's a kind of, you know, inevitably in the creative world, there is, there's always tensions, you know, because that's, that's the life we lead and people don't always agree creatively. Um, Some people want to do something one way and some people want to do something another way. And that, that can often create little flare-ups. How often have you, if ever, been on a film where the level of conflict was very little? Um, I would say fairly rarely, I'll be honest. There's, there's always tension. And, and often it's tension between people who've known each other for many, many, many years. They're just, people are exhausted. People are tired. You know, the shooting days are long, 12-hour days. Then often meetings afterwards. The poor directors are dragged, you know, from pillar to post and have enormous amounts of responsibility. And inevitably, you can you can just snap, you know, that just that can just happen. And so I think you will always get a kind of a release valve moment for a director to shout at possibly one of their greatest friends you know that's just not unusual and then they make up and they'll have a beer that that evening or whatever or or an orange juice and uh, and all is well so considering the level of interpersonal conflict in film production other than having a drink at the end of the day which i'm sure is a very curative process 
from your experience, what do you think takes the strain out of the whole thing? Well, I, I think it's it comes back to that. You, you'll see it throughout film history is that you know a lot of people form very close partnerships. You know, directors and DOPs, or directors and editors. You know, and you can you can see that with the likes of from Spielberg to Scorsese, all the way down. And what that gives you is filmmaking is sort of a, I, I would view it as a family. You know, not not all the family get on well. You know, you've got cousins and uncles and aunties who who are not very popular and they come to the party and they all row, but you can go home with your brother and your sister and you can have a beer and you can let the steam out and you can relax. So I, I, I think it, it it's sort of that way and that we all, you know, whether it's Christian Colson and I in India, we could have a beer at the end of a long day on Slumdog in the heat uh, and we could just let off steam and, and sit and have a giggle about other stuff, and that was fantastic. And we've been we've been solid good friends ever since. And that that does that does really help. And we'd made two films before before that point anyway. Um, so it, it it's it comes down to that relationship issue, I think. And that's that's where lots of people, you know, DOPs and directors form very close bonds. And it's a shorthand, you know, that you don't have to go through the dance of getting to know each other. It's just each film whether it's Alan Parker, Sir Alan, and Michael Saracen, they could just walk onto a film set and they know exactly what each other wants and knows exactly what each other needs, when to go up to them, when not to go up to them. And that that can take a huge amount of strain out of the process. It can add some strain, but it can also take a lot out. Okay, and moving into post-production now, to what extent are you involved in that stage of the filmmaking process? And what is that involvement like? Well, I mean, we're slightly one step removed from that process. We we often turn to a tried and trusted post-production supervisor that we've worked with in the past, and we look to them for advice on the very latest, because post-production changes rapidly, almost on a a kind of weekly basis, really. So we we look to them as the experts. They come and guide us and tell us, you know, look, post-production schedules, how long do we need the editors, how long for the mix, the dub, you know, the grade, and then all the finals and then the delivery, et cetera, et cetera. So it, we are slightly, normally in my position, we disappear by the time post-production starts kicking off. You know, that that's will have gone by then. So it's really about us just planning it with the post-production supervisor. And then the baton is often handed from us, the line producer, over to the post-production supervisor and they go and run they go and run the post-production like we would production. Okay, I see. And shifting gears a bit now, you've worked both on films with massive budgets and more modest ones. How does the role of a line producer change when the financial scope of the production is different? Or is it pretty much the same thing? I think it's, honestly, I think it's pretty much the same thing. I think that the the difference is on the lower budget films, there is a sort of, there's a freedom to just go out there like it was the Wild West and just get these films made get them done, make them as good as we could make them and hope that they go on their journey and become, you know, hope the films that some of them have become. That That's the beauty for, for me or was the beauty of, of the independent filmmaking because there is really no one to answer to. It's sort of between the director and the producer and us to just get out there and get it done. Um, of course, there's a financier. Sometimes they have some involvement you know sometimes they have they they let the the creatives get on with it but but more often than not the 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 director and the producer are left alone to just sort of go out and just make the best film they can make and often was the way and it worked pretty well and as you as you 
said at the beginning, we we managed to to pull off some really fantastic films under under very low budget conditions. You know, whether it was Bender Like Beckham or The Descent or Eden Lake or you know even Woman in Black was made for a, for a fair nominal amount of money. So, you know, it, it's it's really that is the driving force for for us or was for, with Independence is that you do have that freedom. They're hard and they're tough and they do cause problems because you never have enough money. Um, and then when you get to the bigger budget films, you just have more money. But I think, honestly, you just have more, brings with it more trouble because you've just got more voices, more issues, and the issues are just more expensive to solve. And along the same lines, you've worked on films that were shot digitally as well as ones that were shot on film. What's the difference between how you work in these two different mediums? I, I, well, I mean, I'm not so much on the floor all the time, but I, I, there was a skill set to film. And what I think film gave us was there was always a limit, no matter who you were. If it was a big budget, of course, the limit was endless. But if it's an independent, which is what we were used to, there was always just be careful with the film, because if it goes too much, we get into to big financial problems because the, the repercussions were endless. And I think what that did was it made directors and DOPs really work hard with the actors to get the first couple of takes absolutely bang on and not start rolling film until you were absolutely ready. I think it potentially may have been a little bit slower because of course now there's a there's a lot more energy, you know, a lot of directors like to shoot the rehearsal, it's just digital, it doesn't mean anything, it's cheap, we can just keep running and running and running. So potentially maybe it's faster, but I think it also means we just seem to shoot an awful lot more material, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I don't know. So the, the mindset was, I felt was slightly different um, with film. And we, we did have to be very much more cautious in our approach because we had a certain ratio that we couldn't go above. And, and if we did, we'd have to talk to the director and then they would have to say, look, tomorrow I'm going to shoot much quicker because it's much easier. This has been big, long takes and emotion and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's the difference. I mean, I miss film. I love film, but the stress of film, we did, weirdly, we did Viceroy's House on 35 mil and we were out in the middle of, uh, you know, Rajasthan in Jodhpur. Um, and that became quite scary when film started running out because we were racing through a certain stock that the DOP wanted to use and we didn't have enough of it. And then we had to scramble to get it from the UK and maybe find some in Mumbai. And it was, I, I don't miss that part of filmmaking, I have to say. And you mentioned working in India, and I do want to transition into that. India is not the easiest place to make films in. And you've worked here a few times with films like Slumdog Millionaire, Viceroy's House, and most recently, The White Tiger. Could you talk a bit about how an experience like working on Slumdog differs from a UK or US shoot? No, I mean, I, I, when Christian Coulson and I were at, uh, well, Christian was at Celador, I was working there on, we were doing this little film called uh, Eden Lake. And Christian had received a script from Film 4, um, from Simon Beaufoy, that Film 4 were looking for the rights to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And Christian came into to the office and he said, look, I've got this script. I think it's amazing. I want you to have a read of it and we're going to send it to uh, a director this weekend. And I read it and it was a fantastic read, a beautiful script, probably still to this day, one of the best scripts I've, I've ever read. And I looked at him and said, Christ, I've never even been to India. And he said, well, I, I've only traveled there 20 odd years ago 
got pretty sick and came home. Uh-huh. So we ended up with, uh, I, I was very fortunate in the fact that because I'd done Bendit Like Beckham, right. I was able to call Deepak Nair and say, Deepak, look, we've been, we're looking at this script, shooting in India. What do you think? Do you know anyone? Who can I call? And Deepak had this, this chap called Tabrez Nurani and, a, and an amazing human being called Pravesh Sani. And he said, Paul, if you go with these guys, Tabrez and Pravesh, you will never look back. And to his word, we, we went to India on a recce with Danny and Christian and I and Simon, and we spent a couple of weeks in, in Mumbai and we met all the teams. And in the end, we chose Pravesh and India Take One and Tabrez and because we, we loved the idea that Tabrez was Mumbai-born but lived in Los Angeles. So he, he helped us and he spoke Hindi, obviously, and, and knew Mumbai very well. He helped us bridge the gap between us in the West and, you know, the, the Pravesh and the team on the ground and in the East, as it were. And they were fantastic. I have to say, it was a it was a dream. It was a very very tough shoot. It was difficult, hot, and of course, everyone, not just me, that goes to India finds it difficult. You know, whether it's my DOP or it's our production designer or it's costume or whoever, everyone has the, their issues, and they are. India is not an easy place. Um, but there are some that take to it like ducks to water and there are some that, that struggle within the confines of the way India India works. But it was it was a I think we'd all come away from it having had a great experience, difficult though it was. And I, I, I loved it and I've I've been going back ever since and it's it's been it's been terrific. Okay, that's really good to hear. And what about your experience with Viceroy's house, which at least in terms of content is very different? What was working on that like? Well, it was. I, I think it was very different. Also, mainly because it was very different as a film, and it and it because it was a very period piece set in 1947. It was a much calmer feel because of the because of that nature of it. Whereas Slumdog was incredibly frenetic and slums and all the dirt and grime that Danny wanted. Obviously, Viceroy's house was very much more upstairs downstairs affair, where you have Mountbatten's and the beautiful pomp of the of the British Raj. And then, you know, the servants' quarters, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we were also shooting away in a beautiful place in, in Jodhpur and Umed Bhavan Palace and in and around Jodhpur. So it was a much more calm and controlled environment. And obviously Jodhpur is a, a very nice and quiet place and all the crew came up. So it felt much more contained, whereas, you know, Slumdog was just the chaos of, of Mumbai and the, and the traffic and the tuk-tuks and the, you know, I had five months that we spent in Mumbai, I would say, probably three months of that, I was stuck in a car in traffic. You know, that's how much how much we saw of it. But it's very, very different. And of course, the period side of things in India is is fabulous. It's so beautifully kept that you can, you can almost shoot anywhere. Okay, I see. And now, having also done The White Tiger here, I want to ask you, what do you think works well in India? And what do you think could use improvement in terms of film production? I think, honestly, that the, the answer to that is what we bring to India from the West is the problem. Because we often want India to conform to the way we do things in the West. And I don't think that's necessarily right, or I don't agree with that. And that's often where the problem is. And I and I keep saying to all the crew that I bring, please remember that these are some of the most talented and experienced people you'll ever meet on the planet. But they will have a slightly different way of doing things that you would do maybe in, in the West. And so 
you have to arrive with a little bit of flexibility because, you know, India is one of the busiest filmmaking nations on the planet. They make, I don't know, when we were doing Slumdog, it was something like 700 films a year, whereas in the UK we made maybe 90 at our peak. So there's no comparison in terms of the skill set. Whether we agree that that's the way to make films or not is, is sort of irrelevant. And so I think the skill set in India is amazing. Um, and it's often what we bring to it that is the problem because we want, well, hang on, we don't do it like this in the West. We have to do it like this. And that creates the issues where the Indian crew maybe aren't quite as as built that way. They're used to doing this way day in, day out. And if we try and change it, the whole apple cart can start to, to wobble. So I don't know that I would change that much. I just think it's always it's always the problem of, who we bring and and their expectations of what they want India to behave like and perform like. Right. So it's a matter of adapting to India's work culture, which I'm assuming includes a lot of play it by ear work. I would. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of my other recommendations to all crew that I bring is look, view India like the Ganges. If you swim with the Ganges, you'll probably have a pleasant time and you'll have a slightly more relaxed journey you might be able to try and change the course of the Ganges along the way. But if you try and swim against the Ganges and you try and force the Ganges to stop, turn left, turn right, go back the same way, you inevitably will go nowhere and you'll end up tired and exhausted and still floating down the Ganges in the same direction. So uh, that that's my kind of analogy for, for working in India is that you do have to swim with the Ganges a bit. <laughs> okay, I think that's a really great way of putting it. So moving into advice now, what's your advice to aspiring line producers or producers looking to break into the industry? That's a, it's a really tricky question, this one. I'm very fortunate, and there are a lot of people in my business that are very fortunate that you start from the very bottom. I was a runner, I would say, for a good five years. I was just a pure running and getting tea lacing up the steam deck with the rushes from the day before, running about, driving about, collecting stuff. And I did it for five years because I absolutely loved it. And I enjoyed every single waking minute. It was great fun. I was fortunate back then to work in commercials where they often took the runner to the foreign locations, Spain or Portugal or Malaga or wherever the hell it was because you know they just, the director knew how you like to make his coffee. So I would make the director's coffee and I got to go. So by doing that, I managed to just learn everything. I could talk to every grip, every gaffer, every DOP, every costume designer, every makeup artist, and just go, how do you do that? How did you do that? What do you do? What would you help? This, et cetera, et cetera. So you get to absorb like a sponge everything that goes into just the basic filmmaking philosophy. And after that, you are then able, I think, to then bounce whichever way you want to bounce. You can bounce to ADs, to costume, to art department, to camera, to wherever you want to go, because you sort of have an understanding of every single department because you've been helping every single department. And there's no one is going to hide from you what goes on in their department if you're the lowest on the rung because they have nothing to hide it's just get me a cup of coffee and help me zip this horse suit onto this actor you know what i mean so you're there and no one needs to oh what's that person doing in here trying to learn what to do boom 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 you're just you're just swept along with all of them and i i ended up going into the ad department because i just loved you know having a radio and asking 
pedestrians if they wouldn't mind waiting while we we took our our shot um right so I, i'm easy in that re- i'm lucky in that respect because it was easier for me i i was able and i could afford to earn that living for quite a long time as a runner and it's a very fairly simple life and then i was able to start going up i think it's it's obviously it's a difficult industry to sort of break into i think that's probably true across the world that it's it's not the easiest it's very very nepotistic and it and it is very cliquey because you know it's friends of friends and so it's it's not an easy thing to say just you know start at the bottom and work your way up but if there's a way you can i i do think you learn a huge amount now that helped me from a physical production point of view and becoming a line producer in the end made a huge difference to me because I understand and I understood every single element of filmmaking. Um, It's different if you want to be a director or a producer per se, because a producer's talents need to be much more driven towards developing a script, figuring out, you know, where to get the finance from, how to communicate with actors and, and financiers and directors. So it's a different skill set. And often it produces come through the development side of things, working through, you know, development departments or in-house or whatever it is. That's often another way of it coming from producing point of view. Okay. And for my last question, do you have a particular moment from your career you're most proud of? I mean, I think it would it's gonna be hard to top standing on the stage at the Oscars in Los Angeles, holding hands of the, the little kids from Slumdog with the other 20, 30 crew that we had with us. I, I think it'll be pretty hard to top that one, I would say. I'd imagine a moment like that will stay with you for the rest of your life. So that's certainly quite amazing. Well. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I knew next to nothing about line producing before this conversation, and I feel like I have a much better understanding of how hands-on and rigorous the job is, both in pre-production, with all the calculations and crew hirings you have to do, and production with all its conflict and logistics. It's a complicated and crucial job to the filmmaking process, and I see that now. So thank you so much for all the knowledge you've given us today, and thank you for joining us on the credit roll. Thank you. That was our episode with line producer Paul Ritchie. And with that, we hope to have you join us for our next conversation. The Credit Roll is an original podcast by Jamon. The show is hosted by Abhineet Kumar. Producers are Rodayan Bejal and Natasha Ratti Kapoor. Editors are Abhineet Kumar, Paras Gorung, and Rukni Roy. The artwork is by Sionatva Krambam and the theme song is Song of Sadhana by Jesse Gallagher.